broadband is a type of infrastructure. So it's a planner's job to think about, well, how do we how do we develop a system and to have uh, the people, citizens, connected to the system. This is episode 260 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Author, journalist, and fellow Alex Marshall visits with Christopher this week about broadband as infrastructure. They also discuss the role of planners as broadband has transitioned into a necessity for economic development, education, municipal services, and many other critical uses. Before we get started, we want to remind you that this commercial-free podcast isn't free to produce. Take a minute to contribute at ILSR.org. If you're already a contributor, thanks. Now here's Christopher with Alex Marshall. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Alex Marshall, an author, a senior fellow at the nonprofit urban planning organization, the Regional Plan Association, and that's in New York City, and a columnist for Governing Magazine. All in one person. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Alex, you and I have gone back and forth uh, for a lot of years, actually. Uh, you came in town, one of the places you visited in promoting your book, uh, The Surprising Design of Market Economies, a book that I wholeheartedly recommend. Um, and and I think we're going to talk about that later in the interview. But first, I want to ask you more about planning. Uh, you are a planner. You do a lot of thinking about planning. You write about this sort of thing and the role of broadband within planning. And so mm-hmm. maybe the, the best place to start is just what's the historic role of planners been with relation within relation to broadband? Well, I think um, planners tend to view it correctly as another form or, or branch of essential infrastructure. So it is the duty of planners to think about infrastructure and and what are the systems we need, uh, how should it be provided, where should it be laid out, what are the systems. Good planners think about that and you know and have and have different answers to that. You know, I was, I'm just preparing to, to give a talk out in Los Angeles next week, which is a conference on infrastructure. I was just thinking of a, of a line that uh, a transportation planner said once a long time ago that I liked. He said, you know, transportation is a system. You can't have a little bit of, of transportation. And so I, I think that applies to infrastructure. For infrastructure to be infrastructure, you, it has to be a system. You can't have a little bit of infrastructure. And broadband is a type of infrastructure. So it, it needs to be a system. And so to that extent, it's a planner's job to think about, well, how do we, how do we develop a system? What's the best way to, to have a system and to, to have uh, the people, the public, citizens connected to the system? So when we, when we think about that sort of system, what are the, the kind of daily things that planners do that will impact how a system is developed or conceived of or just how, how it would impact my daily life um, that a planner is thinking about these things in a, in a better way or a worse way? You know, the planners sort of work for various people. There, there, there are sort of nonprofit planners such as the organization I'm part of the Regional Plan Association, who just basically do studies and then lobby to get them sort of done. Uh, but there are the planners that work for all levels of government. And, and their actions often have eventually more the force of law, where you either implement laws or work with legislators or city council to, to have uh, plans in place that actually um, 
make it possible or either deliver service directly or make it possible for service to be direct directly. So with, uh, with broadband, it's um, mostly at the city level, but there's, uh, you know, the planners are often a key interface between the providers of broadband and the public. So they help decide how that's going to happen, how that's going to be provided. They can, and they can either facilitate it or make it more difficult and have a say in sort of who's providing it. I get a sense that, uh, well, considering I just spoke at the American Planning Association recently in New York City, yes. that, that planners are really getting excited about being more involved with broadband and recognizing that they have to get involved. And And I'm curious if you have any advice for, you know, maybe some of these people that are excited and trying to figure out how to plug in, um, regardless of where they might be, um, what are some of the things that planners should be thinking about right now? I, I think planners should be thinking about uh, who's in charge? You know, who who controls and and who owns things? There there is a tendency sometimes among planners, as there is among the general public, to to kind of have uh, subjectless sentences or subjectless thoughts. You sort of say, well, this brand broadband is really great. Let's help uh, spread it, or let's uh, help have some good planning for it, without totally. Talking about well, well, who's in charge? Basically, is it is it the uh, private telecommunications company? Uh, will it be the city? If this is an essential technology, who is who is owning it? Uh, so that's always a good question. Who who owns it? Who controls it? To keep those questions foremost in your mind, if you're a planner, is a good one because uh, if the public is not ultimately in charge, then usually you're, you're going to have some problems. And presumably, one of the ways the public could be in charge would be to uh, not only building municipal citywide networks, which you've written, um, and, and like me, you support the ability of cities to decide for themselves if that's a, mm-hmm. a good decision, but, but also um, planners might be responsible for ensuring that a city is in deploying conduit and perhaps fiber optics in ways that would lower the cost for a new entrant to come to town or something like that. Yeah, cities cities help basically establish the marketplace. Is it a, is it an open market? Is it a, a market where only one or two players can can be? Do does the city provide some of the services, and then business comes in? So, um, as I say in my book, "Surprising Design of Market Economies," the, the the arenas that business operate are instituted by government. So we should we should think about what um, sort of kind of arenas or or public squares or business squares, the uh, the governments are doing. Well, that's a it's a good connection to what I really wanted to to jump into with you, and that is um, this this idea of the surprising design of market economies. And and I'll throw at you something that I hear a fair amount of, which is that. Um, if government would just get out of the way, we would see markets work amazingly well, and we wouldn't have broadband problems. And I'm, I'm curious how you respond to that uh, common notion. Thanks for throwing me that softball in a way, because uh, I, yeah, I did write a book about that. It's it, it's basically just a a misunderstanding of how markets work. Um, you you can't have markets uh, without government. So asking government to get out of the way so business can do its job is, is kind of nonsensical. You can't actually have business without government. You can't have property. You can't have uh, – they, they all depend on 
on government, basically. You know, as uh, I think it was Warren Zevon had the song. You, you know, to have you have markets, you need lawyers, guns, and money. You know, you have yeah, government is involved in every step of the way. It's 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 not only a referee for sort of fair play, but it also lays out the playing field and decides what the goals are and where the lines are and on and on and on. And so these are all public choices. We often miss what government is doing in the areas that it does it so well, we just don't think about it. So property rights, they actually work relatively well most of the time. So we don't really think about the fact that they, these are all based on laws that say who owns what, how you own it, what happens if someone else says you own something. Oh, and you know, when a lot of physical infrastructure that we depend on goes back to government and Again, we just don't tend to think about it when it works well. One of the things that I think people really never think about is just the idea of the corporation and yes. and the idea of an entity that has um, sort of limited liability and and can live forever and has a number of benefits that frankly allow uh, certain kinds of businesses to do very well. And I'm not I'm not talking about just big corporations. I'm talking about the ability of people to sort of turn into a corporation and then do things. I'm curious if you can just tell us a little bit about that idea. Yeah, yeah. And, and corporations is another great example. It's We've gotten so used to them, we just accept them as if they are sort of laws or nature. They look like they've always been there. And ironically, they've often become a symbol of private enterprise. Uh, but a corporation is a creation of government. It's actually, uh, someone called it a mini republic. It's a, it's a grant of authority and a grant of special powers uh, from the government. And that, that is done through something called a charter. A government of some type issues this charter, be the state usually or the federal government, and they create something called a corporation that has these special powers. And originally they were only granted uh, for public purposes. So there would be like a university or a monastery or to build a road. In the 19th century, they gradually became opened up to just purely for-profit enterprises, and then eventually got granted that you could do it just by right. You could just, just anybody could start a corporation. You used to have to get a special uh, authorization by the legislature. And um, so we've forgotten that these, these corporations that we talk about, from Apple down to a little neighborhood corporation, is created by government. And we, we the people who control the government, um, we can change those rules, redesign those charters, redesign what powers they have. And uh, they, they've been, um, in a lot of ways, very effective tools, corporations. But I, I think it would be better if we remember that they're ultimately creations of the people and answerable to them. One of the things that I often think about when people say, oh, government just got out of the way, I think, well, it would be interesting if, if, if Comcast had to negotiate with every landowner um, to put a pole, the utility pole, in their property. And you can imagine the kind of patterns that might exist when you have perhaps like, you know, 10 properties in a row and two of them say no. <laughs> so right. Comcast has to like detour around the neighborhood to try and find landhold landowners that are willing to you know give them at a reasonable cost access to put a pole in their yard, um, just just things like that that I think people just take for granted. Yeah, exactly. And and for infrastructure, it's always done 
basically in the public right away. It's either done through utility poles or you know in the streets. If government got out of the way and said, "Okay, look, we're getting out of the way. We're not going to allow you to use our streets because you know we, we don't want to impede you," and then they had to just yeah negotiate somehow buy up their own right of ways for uh, for all their lines and but yeah it would, it would it would be completely unworkable. So again, the idea of government somehow getting out of way is just it doesn't even really make sense. Yeah, I, I, what I want to engage you on um, relating into your your book, you talk about roads and the gas tax, and I feel like roads are often used to discuss broadband systems as a comparison, and I think it's it's a very good comparison. And I'm I'm curious, so I'm curious if you would agree that that roads and broadband have a lot of commonality. I'll tell you what I think about roads, and then we'll see if we can sort of reach broadband. I think roads are pretty neat because. They're mostly an example of government doing its job really well. They, they, I mean, the, the, the roads and street systems in this country, whatever their flaws, mostly work really well, and we don't even think about it. It's, it's an example, basically, of pure socialism, really. Uh, you know, government owns all the streets. They're mostly paid for through taxes, not user fees. It's like 90% through just taxes of some sort. And, you know, I walk out my door here in New York City and I, you know, no one charges me to to walk down the street or to ride a bicycle on it or to drive a car or to walk on the sidewalk. It's it's just open to anybody. It's a, uh, a, and it's a system. It's a network. It's not a little fragmented thing. You don't have the you know, different streets owned by different people or different roads, and you have to pay each one. So it's it's an example of a of government doing its job really well, laying out a system, charging it mostly through general taxation. Yeah, it works pretty well. I mean, there are obviously ways it could be improved, but I would like to see broadband something similar, where the government sort of lays out the municipal fiber networks. It, it, the analogy is not exact. You probably would have to charge something. But uh, I, w- I would like the, there to be a system on broadband that functions as well as our road and street network. Well, there's a couple of follow-ups, and, and one you noted, which is, why is the gas tax not a user fee? Yeah, that's uh, something I love to talk about, because it does, at first glance, appear to be a user fee. You go, oh, well, I, I go up to a pump, and I put some gas in, and drive away, and then I use the road, so it's kind of a user fee. But it's not really a user fee, because it's not connected to any particular street i compare it to like a what if every time you went shopping to for groceries you paid a tax on avocados and then government could use that you know in any way it wanted to for the agricultural system or even stuff in general that that wouldn't be a user fee it's uh it's just a way of taxation and it's similar to gas it's just a system the government has of taxing it's not a user fee because it doesn't relate to any one road. Right. I think that's a compelling argument. One of the other things I think about is that the roads were developed before we had technology that was capable of basically tracking any individual or even any any piece of equipment that uses the roads and perhaps charging them um, a pro rata share of their use. And um, I guess I'm curious if you think – uh, I think some libertarians would think this would be great. Then we could actually charge for the roads appropriately. And I'm curious how you react to our ability to do that. Should we take advantage of that now? 
uh, with caution. That's that's to say, we should take advantage of that with caution. Oregon has been experimenting with a program where you do have little things on your car, and it would rate how much you use the roads, and then um, charge you accordingly. And I also believe charge you higher when there's congestion. So all all of those actually do have some potential, but you have to be careful because infrastructure has wide benefit to people as as the public as the as sort of the state when you do something like build a road network you want it used as widely as possible you just put a lot of money into this and uh and you want it used widely you don't want everyone thinking twice before they step out their front door so so generally actually you don't want to charge for the use of any kind of infrastructure unless it's overused unless it's sort of congested or you need to, to ration it somehow. And this is libertarians usually don't understand this, basically. They, they, they've gotten so uh, into the sort of uh, rut of thinking of, oh, you charge for services, that's, that's efficient. They don't understand the logic of, of basically infrastructure. Infrastructure actually is, it has a different logic. It's, 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 it's that we as a society benefit when we spread the use, when we pay for this service or institution uh, generally and then have it used as widely as possible. So, I mean, uh, education is another big example. We did, decided, you know, 150 years ago through a big, long, drag, drawn-out political fights that everyone would have a right to a public education and that we as a society work better when people know how to read and write. Uh, we don't say everyone has to pay at the door to enter a school and that if you can't, then you can't come in and that the schools have to survive solely on those fees. Well, and that, that's actually one of the other things I, I think you point out in terms of one of the things government does that people don't notice is creating an educated workforce for um, the market to be able to take advantage of. But I don't want to get sidetracked from you. You kind of led me right back to where I wanted to end up with broadband because there's that issue of um, – when we worry more about who's paying and if they're paying for their fair share when there's congestion and overuse. With modern broadband networks, we don't really have to worry about that as much. I mean, you know, if we need more broadband, it takes a little bit more electricity. It it doesn't take, you know, to basically to big, to put in a bigger router or something like that with a fiber network. It, we don't need to go mine more coal or dig dig new water wells. And um, and this is an issue that that it's been interesting to me in that even the municipal networks that that you and I often support, they have more or less just adopted the cable model of trying to figure out how to make individuals pay. And there's there's these tiered plans to try and make people who want to use more pay more. And it's very complicated. And and that one of the um, downsides of that is that low-income households find it difficult to afford access. Yeah, that's probably a big mistake, basically. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason I, I, I compare it to roads often is that people don't realize how much of the roads were built by taxpayer dollars, and yeah. it makes sense to do that. And I, you know, I think that there's because there is a cable and telephone industry that government should not just steamroll because many of us are frustrated with our service. Um, you know, it strikes me we actually have a situation in which I could see Americans in many cities supporting using general taxpayer dollars to build open fiber networks that would enable multiple business models to use them. Um, and 
and and sort of lower the cost of entry so we could achieve numerous ends. But I feel like this metaphor of the road is important for um, making that point. I think you, you've actually come up with a better framework than me. Yeah, in a way, you think of the yeah think of the the roads or the broadband networks, the fiber optic networks as the streets. Maybe the cable companies would be the car companies. Uh, government builds the roads, and then the car companies build the cars, and you buy the cars if you want to use the roads. And does it sort of hold up? Uh, if if does it would could government build the fiber optic networks, and then Various companies could actually bid or or, uh, or even operate on the same network. Was that does that hold up? Right. Yeah. There's there's multiple ways of doing it, and in some ways, it's it's actually again analogous in that you could even imagine like a, like the public operates transit service next to buses. You can imagine services that are aimed at different audiences. Some are private. Some are public. Uh, but anyway, I think it, one of the things that that we have to come back to is thinking about infrastructure more broadly rather than just thinking about internet as this thing we got from cable and telephone companies narrowly. Yeah. Something that I keep getting excited about is the comparison to electricity back in the 1920s and 30s when people were aware that electricity was not just an amenity. It wasn't just something that made life better if you if you could get it, you know, kind of like internet in the early days. It was actually essential. Uh, so there gradually became these big fights over who was going to provide electricity and similar to kind of internet companies now or telecommunications companies there are people who began to resent the power companies who felt like they were providing basically bad service at a high price and not rolling it out uh, very quickly and then, and then when they did roll it out charging too much for it well, and, and just to jump in briefly, of course, the, the cycle repeats itself because the gaslighting companies were the were the enemies in the 1800s, at the end of the 1800s, and yes. the electric companies were seen as delivering people from that horror. The tyranny of the gas companies, yes, who were, of course, laying their pipes again in the public streets. Right. You know, power had some good results in some places. You know, some cities and towns managed to get public power. And they generally, still today, operate better than the ones who don't have it. There, there are very small places like Wilson, North Carolina, and there's uh, very large places like Los Angeles. And yeah, they, they you know, the, the government provides electricity, and it tends to work well and to be stable. And now many of those same towns that have public power, it's, it's relatively easy for them to start offering broadband as well, to lay out fiber and to use their existing customer base and booking systems to do all that. But, you know, it's, it, it's a political issue. I would like to see a, president, a presidential candidate campaign on this the way Franklin Delano Roosevelt did in 1932. He, he was very, um, very open about it and very strong. He actually, you know, he gave a famous speech in Portland, Oregon in September of 1932, where he very strongly came out in favor of public power and basically said, if private enterprise can't do the job, then it's the duty of government to step in and do it. And uh, it's such a it's such a great speech because he talks so clearly and boldly. It's a it's a real model of a great a great speech. I encourage 
any of your listeners to look it up. The Portland Speech by Franklin Roosevelt. Yes, I've read it, and uh, and I wholly second your endorsement. Um, as we finish up, I want to make one more note, which is a, a note that I made when I first read your book a few years ago. And um, that is one other thing government does that, that many of us forget about. And it's really important, particularly as we deal with the idea of bandwidth caps, because um, there's a question of who measures and how accurate is that measurement. Um, you know, we've seen some of the cable companies that have these caps saying, all right, well, you've hit your limit. And, and sophisticated technical people will say, I've been measuring my, my data usage and I'm nowhere near my limit. And one of the things government does is make sure that measurements are fair. And you had you had noted that whether you're talking about a meter or a yard or a liter or a quart, whatever, we know that a liter is a liter in New Orleans as well as San Francisco, and a quart is a quart no matter where you go because of government. Yeah, that's, again, a fascinating thing, these things we don't even think about uh, and which people take for granted. The, the reason we have standard units of measurement and you know, and a pound or a meter or whatever is the same wherever you go. Is because government actually at one point actually created a standard of, of what a pound is or what a what a yard is or or a meter. And actually, uh, in the case of yards and pounds, they actually you know, created these like golden yardsticks that were super expensive and stored in Washington. They were the official yard, and then copies were made of that and then distributed around the country. And it's, yeah, it's not, it doesn't just happen. Well, thank you for coming on the show and, and I think opening people's eyes. And uh, I hope that some of these folks will, will check out your book because I, I feel like um, I, I, I think about it on a regular basis as I'm doing this work. Well, that's great. Thank you very much, Chris. And keep up your really good work. You're a, you and your organization are real assets to this country. So keep it up. That was Christopher with author Alex Marshall. Be sure to check out Alex's books at your local independent bookseller. He's released several titles, including The Surprising Design of Market Economies, Beneath the Metropolis, The Secret Lives of Cities, How Cities Work, Suburbs, Sprawl, and the Roads Not Taken. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and all of the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research by also subscribing to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle License to Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 260 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs> <laughs>